Our passage this morning is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. When you gather to eat with someone else, you're moving into a level of intimacy with someone that is probably deeper. You should look through all the cases of Jesus eating with people. It is one of the most common things it's reported he did was he ate with people. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. So he didn't just eat with good people, he ate with like the dregs of society. First off, it's probably one of the big ways many people feel cared about is is time. Without time, uh, most people don't just share the hard parts of their life. So I think when they know that they can trust you, that you care about them, and that you're present, they tend to open up more about their story. I don't think I had any idea of what happened when I, when I died, I had grown up thinking, I think there's a God, I hope there's a God, and if you do more good than bad, you get to go to heaven. And then by the time I was 20, I was starting to think, no, you just die and rot in a box. And I thought, hey, I've got 60 years to figure this out. I'd started off going to college somewhere in downstate Illinois and transferred to Iowa State at 20. And starting at a new school where I didn't know anyone, but I wasn't a freshman, so it was hard to find a place to kind of, you know, where was I going to belong? And so I think God had me exactly where he wanted me. He had seen some life that some of us hadn't. And he's from big city Chicago, so he's a city kid. We connected on that level because I grew up in Washington, D.C. area. He was probably the first person I've known that's been raised in a Jewish background that really became a close friend. I had a roommate that was randomly assigned, and he filled out a survey for a chance to win a free pizza. It was a spiritual interest survey. And so two guys followed that survey up at our, in our dorm room, and that's ultimately how I met the guys who ultimately led me to the Lord. They reached out and invited us to church and, and a couple other activities. We basically wanted to try to live out our faith in the college dorm life situation. We would go out and pray in the fields. We would walk around the dorm building and pray for the dorms. And we were trying to read the Bible in community, and so we were inviting people into that. I think the first thing actually Matt came to was is that we just had a spiritual discussion group, and we would just talk about the intersection of faith and the world that we're in. He was there every week and would talk about faith every week. And we gathered really quickly that he was not just someone who was interested in faith, but he was kind of spiritually seeking. He was trying to figure it out. I had known people who attended church in the past, but their lives didn't look any different than mine. And this was the first person that I had ever met whose life looked different because of their their faith. And so we went out a couple times and we just, you know, we read the Bible and we just talked about stuff. And ultimately that led to them going through the cross diagram with me and quickly recognized that I was a sinner. And that ultimately was the initial driver for me to say, I am a sinner and I need Jesus. I was extremely into myself and, and a bunch of things that weren't terribly godly. So they never quit. 
uh, at any point. Being themselves, listening to me, listening to my story and getting to know me, you know, there was a lot of conversation about what God had for our lives. And I remember having times where he'd say, hey, you want to read the Bible at 6 a.m.? And I'd be, absolutely. And he would come to the door and I'd either be asleep or I'd be awake and I just wouldn't answer because I wanted to be sleeping. And so that's what I really appreciated was that despite my sin, they were faithful to keep showing up, keep sharing truth. I did have spiritual interest and they continued to walk with me both before I got saved and then and then after helping to disciple me. I would say it was somewhere right around my 21st birthday. I was at Iowa State, there's these big towers, there was a big field out there, I think where they do collegiate running. And I do remember sometime in October walking out with the guy who had been discipling me and praying out in that field that I recognized that I was a sinner and that I needed Jesus. I feel like I have a purpose in my life that I was lacking. You know, there's these ways that you go, you build your life on career or pleasure or, or whatever it was. And I think I certainly was building mine on you're a good student and then you have monetary success and career success and you have a family and that's and that's life. But you just start to see the ways those things don't fulfill. We had these patterns of prayer and reaching out to people and serving people that we had established. And Matt joined that when Matt said, I'm in, I'm going to follow Christ. He just started living life with us. Then post-college, Matt and I actually moved in and lived together for a couple years and continued to go back and do ministry in the dorms with people that were still in college. In a perfect world, I would have no conflict with anybody and I would be liked by everybody. And that is not a terribly realistic experience, right? Especially if you're gonna really love people and share the truth of the gospel with them. Knowing that, the verse that really helps me with that is 2 Timothy 1.7, which says, God didn't give us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power, love, and self-control. It reminds me of who I am in Christ, and I think remembering who we are in Christ, that we are ambassadors, this is our identity, that really helped me push past whatever my fleshly response to those types of things would be. Matt's been amazing because of just his loyalty to the faith and to our friendship and someone that uh, I think is going to leave a legacy wherever he goes because he's not someone who's just a Sunday morning attender. He's trying to live out his faith through every part of his life throughout the week. Morning, welcome to Grace Community Church. I'm Pastor Brooks. We'll be bringing the word this week. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that you have called us to yourself, that you've given us your son Jesus. And thank you, Lord, that you have uh, called us to, to bear witness to the truth of the gospel, to our neighbors, um, to those that are close to us and those that are on the other side of the globe. Lord, we pray for our missionaries, uh, Lord, all of them, whether they're ministering in Africa or Asia or various parts of the world, Lord. We just pray that you would go with them, that you would, um, you would use them, uh, protect them. And Lord, we just pray that as they serve you and we intercede for them, Lord, our partnership with the gospel with them would bear fruit. Lord, we ask that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to open up this series, or rather this message, in, in this bless, Blessing Our Community series with a hypothetical Hypothetical question. So hypothetically, you're going to get an email later this week. And here's what this email is going to contain. It's going to be from an English literature professor at the university. And they happen to be the student representative for this student gay union. Okay? So among other questions, here are at least a few of the questions that are going to be in this email. Number one, you're going to be asked, 
Are you an evangelical and what does that mean? Secondly, you're going to be asked what your views are on the Bible. And then you're going to be asked what you believe about gender roles. Okay, let that just soak in for a second. What emotions do you have and why after you've read that email? What do you think? Nervous? Suspicion? Suspicion? Fear? Anger. I was waiting for it. Somebody in the first service said annoyed. Okay. So, yeah, there's a whole gambit of emotions. But here's what all of those have in common. Flight or fight response. Why? Because you're getting an email from someone who obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, perhaps doesn't share your worldview. Perhaps. And there's a sense of, there's a sense of like, ah, I feel I got to say something. I don't know what to say. So, There's the emotional aspect. Now, how would you respond? You don't have to answer this. I just want you to think. How would you respond? What would you say? What would you do? Ignore it. Ignore it? Delete. Delete. Let's get coffee. coffee. Someone's cheating and read the book or was here first service. (laughs) No, that's not cheating. Actually, we also... I'm, I'm glad someone said that because... That's not intuitive. That's not the intuitive response. You know, this is a hypothetical, but it's not a hypothetical. This is how the beginning of uh, Rosaria Butterfield's book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English professor's journey into the Christian faith. So this scenario actually occurred, only it wasn't an email. It was a phone call. It was a phone call. Let me read you the foreword, the foreword to her, her biography Uh, on her conversion, how she came to Christ, that's written by uh, a man who would eventually become her pastor. So a little context. She wrote an article that went in an op-ed piece, and she taught at Syracuse University, Syracuse, New York, uh, lambasting promise keepers as a patriarchal religious organization. And she got all sorts of mail. Some of it was fan mail. You give it to them. Some of it was hate mail. And then she got Pastor Ken Smith letter and she couldn't figure out where to put it because he didn't attack her. He just engaged. Well, he then corresponded with her and, and I'll just read you the forward. He said, uh, Are you an evangelical? The voice on the phone pressed on. What do you believe about the Bible? I had written her a letter inquiring about how, such as I, a local pastor could be sure that the university students in our city at least knew what the Bible says, regardless of whether or not they believed it. As a professor in English department, she was responding. But I was surprised by her questions. She was, a fact I learned later, interviewing me. The questions in dialogue on the phone continued for some time. It was a friendly interchange, and with the next question, I posed this response. Dr. Champagne, I think that question should be considered in front of our fireplace following one of my wife's good dinners. How does that sound? She enthusiastically responded, that sounds wonderful. Now, that's not the intuitive response. The intuitive response is, delete, I'm annoyed, or... That's the intuitive response. Not, how about we get a cup of coffee? 
how about you come over into my house and I feed you and we just engage and just talk? That's not intuitive, but should it be? Why isn't it? What we're going to see is that's exactly what Jesus did. He was constantly sitting down and eating with people that did not share his worldview. So that's what we're going to take a look at. We're in three, week three here. We've begun with prayer, and we looked at listening last week, and now we're going to look at eating. Here's the thing. Eating is the context by which listening happens. That's what happens when you eat. Well, unless you're me, but we'll get to that later. So this, this, is, a, this is a forum for, eat, for, for, for listening. So we're going to look at five things here. First of all, Jesus' example. Secondly, his motive. So potential barriers are going to hinder us from engaging and practicing what Jesus practiced. And then some practical considerations that will help us. And then we're going to look at Jesus' invitation. So that's what we're going to take a look at. So let's jump to it. First of all, Jesus' example. Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, look at him. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So Jesus had a reputation amongst his enemies as what? Don't overcomplicate it. What does he say? They think he's a drunk. And they think he's a what? A glutton, a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Why do do they get off accusing him? Earlier, he said John the Baptist uh, didn't come eating and drinking. And you said he has a demon. So what Jesus is saying, listen, we can't win for losing. If we're out in the desert eating grasshoppers, you think we're nuts. If we're eating amongst other people, you call us drunkards or or drunkards and, and, uh, and gluttons. So now that part is not true. Jesus is not a glutton and he's not a drunkard. But the other half of the accusation is spot on. It is spot on. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why did they call him that? Why did they dub him friend of tax collectors and sinners? What do you think? If you've read the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you notice he's always eating with them. It's it's a common experience for him to be breaking bread with people who are not accepted in the religious community. So that's, that's what he says right here. Now, the very next verse you see an example of Jesus doing that. So Luke chapter 6, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table. Jesus accepted all invitations to dinner. He didn't judge based upon, well, first of all, let's get this straight. What's your religious views and what's your worldview? What do you view about this, this, and this? Jesus didn't do that. He's like, sure, what time should I be there? And he strolls in and he's there. So that's the invitation. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flack of ointment. She's not invited. She's not on the dinner list. But she crashes the dinner party. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. 
Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You say, well, we're all sinners. She's a special type of sinner. She makes her living doing what is forbidden. So right away, the, the narrative flows in Luke. Oh, that's how he got the reputation. He didn't push people away. The Pharisees are watching like, this woman is of ill repute. I can't believe that he's allowing this, this, this public display of affection. from Women don't touch rabbis, let alone prostitutes weeping and drooling all over his feet with tears and snot and everything else and undoing her hair. This is just a, this is a public mess. And it's also an expression of worship at a dinner party. That's why he had the reputation. That's why he had the reputation. Now, let's, let's, that's his example. And there are others. There's John chapter 2. The first, the first miracle recorded in Jesus' tenure as, as, uh, in, in his public life is the changing of water to wine at a wedding feast. So this is a water to wine wedding feast. They ran out of booze. They ran out of the wine. And th- so he, rather than have the, the guest become humiliated at this, he turns water into wine. Now, some people are like, well, it was, there was new wine. Alcohol, there was no alcohol. No, it was good wine. I'm sorry if that offends you, but I don't know how you get around that. It wasn't grape juice. So now you understand why he got the label drunkard. He was not a drunkard. But he was at a party. And he was celebrating with all sorts of people. All sorts of people. And then Luke 19, where he meets Zacchaeus, the little guy up in the tree, the tax collector, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I need to go to your house. He even invited himself to other people's homes. I need you to feed me. So open up your home. I'm coming. So it wasn't just that he accepted invitations. He invited himself. Two people that, did, that were not respected in his religious community. So that's the example. Let's take a look at his motive. So this is the calling of Matthew, the apostle, who wrote the gospel of Matthew. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, just quickly before we move on to Jesus' motive, is Jesus telling the Pharisees, listen, you people are clearly righteous, and have no need of me. So I'm not here for you. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. He's not saying you're righteous and therefore you don't need me. He's saying, I have come for those who know their need of me. They did not know their need of him. They needed him just as much as the tax collectors and the sinners because they were sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They're just a special kind of sinner. They're a smug, self-righteous sinner. They need him just as much. And so... That's, that's what he said, but I want to hone in on verse 13. What's his motive? What's his motive? 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy means compassion. It, it means at a gut level, you're moved to engage. You can't just let something go by. Jesus can't just not engage them. He has to. That's what mercy does. The good Samaritan had compassion on, on the man that was on the side of the road because he acted. His, it, it, at a gut level, it pulled him in to this guy's life. He had to engage. Jesus said, I desire mercy, the kind of engagement that pulls people into the lives of other people. I cannot leave these people alone. You can. You avoid them. I can't. So here's what mercy does. Mercy made these people feel valued. Mercy made these people feel valued. A couple of weeks ago in our community group, we're going through a little book called uh, Seeing Jesus. And we're looking at John chapter 4, The Woman at the Well. And one of, a, one of the people in our community group, she came to, col- or came to college here at the University of Iowa. And about 20 years ago or so, she came to Christ. And she attended a small church just up the road, Hope Evangelical. It's a great church, a Presbyterian church. And she said, I don't remember any of the sermons. But I remember every single family that invited me into their home, and I can tell you what we had for dinner. Do you know what that does? You won't remember anything I say 10 years from now. And it's not that preaching is bad. It's, it's that we don't connect at a heart level. But when someone sits you down in their kitchen and they pour you a cup of coffee and they look into your eyes, it communicates, I value you as a human being. It communicates value. And Jesus was communicating value to people who felt worthless, who were not valued in their community, who were hated and despised in their community. You know, Rosaria Butterfield did not feel valued by the evangelical community. She felt hated. She had the box full of letters to show that she did. But not valued. Mercy communicates value. Mercy also makes people feel safe. Now, this is tricky. Is Jesus technically safe? You don't know how to answer, do you? He, he was safe to those people. He was approachable. That's what that means. They, he was approachable. They didn't feel like he was going to condemn. Now contrast Jesus with the Pharisees. The tax collectors and, and the sinners, they don't feel safe around them. They feel, they feel like they're going to be condemned. They're going to feel like they're going to be publicly called out, publicly shamed. Oddly enough, Jesus, it's interesting You've, you've read the scriptures, you've seen where Jesus gets really ticked and he kind of gets all angry in the scriptures. Who is that always directed at? The religious people who are self-righteous. Who is it never directed at? The people that are, the, that are discounted in society, the, the sinners and the tax collectors. He treats them as friends, and, in, and the Pharisees he just argues with because they're always attacking him. They feel safe. They feel safe. I remember reading a book about 20 years ago when I first got into ministry by Jim Sembla. 
It's called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He's a pastor, and it's called a church in, it's in Brooklyn called Brooklyn Tabernacle. And they have a ministry to, to inner city folks in, in, in Brooklyn. And one particular ministry was just going out and talking to streetwalkers, prostitutes. And these women would go out and engage these other women and, and just share Christ and, and, and try to love on them. And one particular woman was having a conversation with a prostitute. She said, have you ever thought about going to church? And the lady's like, church? I feel bad enough about who I am as a human being already. Why would I go to church? Now, why would she say that? Because she's afraid that if she enters in a community like ours, that she's going to stick out like a sore thumb. There's going to be a blinking light that says, look at me, I'm not like any of you. I'm a bad person. And you think I'm a bad person. And the level of shame and the level of condemnation that this woman carries around, no, I'm not going to go to church. I'm afraid to go to church. Later on in her book, Rosaria Butterfield describes that first dinner that she had with Pastor Ken Smith and his wife, Floyd. I'm just going to read to you what she said. Ken and Floyd did something at the meal that has a long Christian history, but it's been functionally lost in too many Christian homes. Ken and Floyd invited a stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen, to learn, and to dialogue. Ken and Floyd have a vulnerable and transparent faith. We didn't debate worldview. We talked about our personal truth and about what made us tick. Ken and Floyd didn't identify with me. They listened to me and identified with Christ. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. That word compassion, in in the Bible, it's always either translated compassion or mercy. That's what Jesus is talking about. During our meal, they didn't share the gospel with me. After our meal, they didn't invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script as I had come to know it, when the evening had ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that I was truly safe to accept his open hand. Do you notice the word? I felt safe. She didn't feel like she was a project that he was trying to change, but a human being that he was communicating that he valued. Now, they, did, they were on opposite spectrums in terms of worldview. He didn't affirm everything about her, but he, he accepted her, loved on her, and they, and they became friends. They became friends. In her book, she goes on to say that it took months before I w- built up the courage to actually walk inside of their church. She said, I would, ev- I would even drive my truck down the street and I would... I would park about a block away, kind of stalking the church, but I I couldn't get up the courage to drive into the parking lot with all my bumper stickers on the back that were the opposite of the other people's bumper stickers. There's a level of fear there. There's a level of, I'm not safe amongst these people. What will they do to me? What will they say to me? And in her book, she talks about, I don't think evangelicals really appreciate the level of fear that someone as an outsider has when they come in just to a a worship service. That level of fear is erased when you say, can you have a cup of coffee at 
at Panera, at Brugger's, or at my, at my living room, in my living room. That's Jesus' motive. Made people feel safe. And then Jesus ultimately, the goal here is not to just help them feel good about themselves or feel safe. What Jesus wanted them to do was to sense their need of him and then meet that need. That was always his agenda. Yes, he broke bread. But he also said, you know, I am the bread. Now that we've broken bread together, let me tell you what will really feed your soul. I will feed your soul. So what he did to the woman at the well. You're thirsty. I'm thirsty. If you knew the water that I had, you'd ask for me, and you would never thirst again. He's always changing it around. He's starting with the tangible, the glass of water, the loaf of bread, the glass of wine, and he's saying, you know what, that's me, and you need me. John chapter 6, after... uh, it says, truly, truly, this is verse 33. Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not yet believe. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus ultimately enters into fellowship with these people and he gives him himself. This is what the Pharisees were incensed about was the fact that by entering into fellowship with them, he's claiming them as his own. They're his people. And the Pharisees are like, they're not our people. They're sinners. They're different from us. They don't get it. Hence, Jesus says, understand, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Because he will be the sacrifice. And that's why he gives mercy. Powerful stuff. Okay, let's get to why some potential barriers that are going to keep us from doing this. First of all, I don't have time. How many of you are like, I don't have time. Don't have time. Just be honest. And I don't have time. Okay, a lot of you. You don't have time. Why don't you have time? I got a job. I got family, my kids are involved in eight different travel leagues, and gas is four fifty a gallon, and I got to drive them all over creation, and I just don't have time. Now, all of you who don't have time, do you eat? It's a yes-no question. Raise your hand if you, from time to time, put stuff in your mouth. Yes, you do. Everyone has time to eat. You make time. Now, you're going to be at your kid's soccer game. You're probably going to be standing next to someone else who's going to have to eat later too. You get to talking with these people, these parents, that as your kids are running around chasing the ball or whatever they're doing, and, or you're, you're at work, you get to talking with these people that you work with or that you go to school with. You're all eventually going to eat. Just invite them along. You don't have to create another event. Just invite them to your event hey, we're going to get lunch after the game. Would you like to come? We're not talking about creating new events. We're just talking about doing the events with other people that you're already going to do. Does it make sense? But then, oh, but I don't know what to say. See, that prevents us. Yes, I am going to eat, but it would be awkward if they were to eat with me because I don't know what to say. They're different than me. 
You don't have to win them to Jesus. That's not your objective. That's the Holy Spirit's job. You're not going to change their worldview over coffee, but you might find out about where they grew up. You ask questions. This is a, it's just about human engagement. Some of you are thinking about this in terms of like, yeah, people I don't know. Start with the people you do. Your, your family. Engage one another in, in communication when you're eating. Ask one another questions. You don't have to... You know, the goal here is not to change their mind about anything. The goal is to listen and learn about their mind. What makes you tick? You say, well, Brooks, what if they say something that makes them tick and it's wrong? Is that going to be a shocker? No. So... You're, you're, you, don't, you don't have to change him. It's not your goal to change him. Your goal is to just simply enter into conversation with him and learn, learn. Now, they're going to ask you questions and then you can, you can talk and say, well, this, you remember the, what, what Rosaria Butterfield said? He said, he, he didn't identify with me. I identified with Christ and we were on different pages and he, he explained, this is what I believe. And they're talking, they're getting to know one another. Don't make it too complicated. The goal, it's not a, it's not a bullet points that you're going you're gonna to hammer out. It's not a Facebook post that after everyone reads, they'll, oh, now I understand why I was wrong. What the heck? How would I be so stupid? That's not, that's not the way communication works. I went off on a Facebook rant earlier this morning, and that was just a piece of what the first service got. So I'm not even going to go there the rest of the... The rest of the service, I'll spare you all my rant. It, it's not effective. No one's hearts are changed. I can't cook. And if you were like, I don't have the gift of hospitality, I can't cook. Order pizza. You remember the video? How did he get roped into the Bible study? If you fill out this survey, you get a free pizza. You can eat pizza. I mean, this is... Yeah, and you don't, you don't have to know how to cook. You just have to know how to pour a cup of coffee. Or you don't even have to know that. You could just go somewhere where they do it for you. <laughs> the barriers, they're all being removed. They're all being removed. Okay, this is embarrassing. I can't talk because my face is literally in my plate. That's, that's me at a function with our community group years ago. And because they love me, they continually mock me and make fun of me. And one of them said, look at, look at him. He's not even aware that we're here. So he just, he started recording me and he put together that gif. Yeah, yeah. But that's the thing. Uh, I cannot hear anything anyone is saying right at that moment, nor do I care. I'm on a mission to inhale everything in front of me with my face one inch from my plate. There is no listening going on. This, this is not how communication works. And they find that humorous, but because they love me, they call me out on it. Because they love me. So come back from sabbatical. I've been back for a month or so, and we get together with a couple in our community group, and we have dinner. And 
I'm doing that. And the guy says, Brooks, put your fork down between bites and engage us. You can ask us questions. And so I take my fork and I put it down. And I raise my head and I said, How was your day? I was shamed. I was shamed, but I wasn't, I wasn't offended because I knew, first of all, he's right. My wife has been trying to get me to do this for 30-some years. And that's what it looks like to love people is to actually acknowledge the fact that they're there. So sometimes eating is not a catalyst to engagement, but it's an opportunity for someone to lose a finger if you're in the vicinity of my plate. <laughs> So, but, but that's, that's, that, that happens, but I can change. I can change. And so can all of us. So practical considerations. First of all, begin with prayer. Change begins with prayer. There, there's no, I can't, I'm not going to engage anyone unless I first of all say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And start right here with me. Help me to lift my face six inches up so I can make eye contact with the other human beings in the vicinity of, of this meal. And it's starting with my family. And then we can branch out from there, right? And also, Lord, give me the courage to engage people and, and not just write them off because they're different than me and believe different things. Give me the courage to just... And that, that leads to listening. Listening, first of all, to the Holy Spirit. How many of you have ever heard a little voice that sounded suspiciously like your own, but it said something like, you should invite that person to coffee. Anybody ever have that? Anybody ever argue with that voice and say, no? And then you try to convince yourself, well, it probably wasn't of the Lord. Oh, no, it was from Satan, because Satan clearly wants you to have coffee with the person who doesn't know Jesus. So you should definitely ignore the voice. When the Lord prompts us to do those things, we need to just take the courage and say, okay, I don't know where this is going to go, but let's have coffee. You know what it might lead to? Coffee and nothing else. But it might be the first of many cups of coffee or many meals that, that leads to a friendship and leads to someone who comes to know Jesus because they felt valued because they felt safe, because they felt cared for, and they end up meeting the bread of life, which is not me or you. Listen, and then team up. So much of this is like, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible cook. My house is a mess. I can't do this. None of us are meant to do any of this alone. So you read the scriptures, you search the scriptures with the exception of one case one case, every time Jesus sits down and has a conversation with someone and there's food or drink involved, it's in a group. It's at a dinner party. There's a, the woman at the well is the only case I can think of where he's talking with someone, there's no one else around. All the rest of them are like, yeah, they're breaking bread. They're at Simon the Pharisee's house. They're at Lazarus's home, Mary and Martha's home. They're, they're the feeding of the 5,000, obviously a group event. The, the wedding... The, the way, all of these are group events. We can do these things together as a team. 
One of the things our community group does every summer is we stop studying the Bible. So, oh, you guys are pagans. I read the Bible every day. But we take a break from studying the Bible, and what do we do? We eat and play volleyball. And we invite people that don't know Jesus. So, well, Brooks, is that really an effective evangelism tool? You know, I've never shared the gospel once in the pool playing volleyball, not once. But friendships are formed. You, you see where this is going? You don't have to do it alone. You shouldn't do it alone. My wife and I are a great team. And we couldn't, I couldn't do it without her because as you saw in the, the GIF, what do I do when I eat? Ignore everyone else in the room. My wife actually engages and asks meaningful questions. And then after she's asked a question, and I'm vaguely aware that a question has been asked, and someone then asks, and she'll ask me, Brooks, what do you think? swallow about what (laughs) and then she'll explain what the question is and now we're off i'm sharing my testimony i'm asking them questions we're talking about the bible we're talking about the gospel and so forth and so on and then i'm back to my food now it's not that bad well kind of but but you get the idea she she kind of gets the you know she primes the pump on the briggs and stratton and then she pulls it a couple times, and then my mouth, it'll start. Now, that's not always good. Remember last week? What am I not good at? Listening. So sometimes I tone down the throttle, and, and I'm learning to listen now. Ask more questions. Talk less. It's hard, but it's a team approach. And I have people that love me enough to say, put the fork down and ask me a question. Community is so huge. I can't do this alone. I was not designed to do this alone. I need my wife. I need my friends. I need you. You need each other. It was Ken Smith and his wife that engaged Rosaria Butterfield. And ultimately, eventually, their whole church. Some of you are like, oh, that sounds so organic. I don't know what to do. There's an inorganic way to jump into this. You can go to a website. Friends of international students. There's over 3,000 international students that come here to the university. That, that's way short. I'm going to say closer to four or five. No one knows. Wade's in the other room. He would know. Four to 5,000 international students. Most of them will never... They'll be here four years, probably, on average, four years in their PhD studies or whatever. And most of them will come to the United States and then they will go back home and they will never see the inside of an American home. You remember Maggie's testimony a few weeks back? She was in the university in California. No friends. She came to Iowa because she heard Iowans were friendly. And they are. In an Iowa nice kind of way. But this is an opportunity. You just go to the website. You say, okay, I'm willing to do this. Well, what is this? They pair you with an international student, male or female, your choice. And you just agree. Your, Your commitment is, I'll get together once a month. Have them over for dinner. Take them to a football game. I don't know, something cultural. That's more than most international students will ever experience. So I wouldn't know what to say. Ask them about their country. Ask them about their lives, how they grew up. And they'll ask you tons of questions about what it's like to grow up in America. And they may never come to know Jesus. But at least they'll go home and say, you know what? 
I remember the inside of their home and the terrible American food that I hated that tasted nothing like where I was from, but they loved me. Or they might come to know Jesus. But ultimately, we have to accept Jesus' invitation for this to even be meaningful. In one of probably the hardest, I'm going to run this up here. One of the hardest passages in Scripture, Jesus spanks the Laodicean church. It's the book of Revelation. You know the one, you know you guys are lukewarm. You're not hot, you're not cold. Because you're lukewarm, I just want to puke you out of my mouth. You make me sick. That one. After he says that to them, he says, listen, those I love, I reprove and I discipline. I'm saying this because I love you. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. Into him and eat with him and he with me. How many of you have heard that in the context of inviting those who don't know Jesus to come to Jesus? Yes? That's not the context. It's not an inappropriate application. He's talking to Christians. He's like, just... Let's sit down and have dinner and let me be the bread and the wine. I want to walk with you. I want my joy to be in you and I want your joy to be complete. I want to be your friend. Yes, you can serve me, but I want to be your friend. I want to have fellowship with you. And he uses the language of a meal to communicate that. When you and I are walking in fellowship with Jesus, we will be able to love and care for others. When we're not, we won't. We'll just keep our face in the plate and only be aware of feeding ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that even those of us who don't listen well and use eating only as an occasion to feed ourselves, you want to have fellowship with us. Lord, we accept your invitation. Lord God, would you do a work in and through us? Help us to become people that love one another well and love our neighbors well for the sake of your glory and for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.